I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey people, welcome to Going Off Track. It is Stephen, Jonah, and Brad bringing you the awesome. Uh, this week we've actually sent Mike to um, Florida. He's at Cape Kennedy, formerly Cape Canaveral. Uh, he's covering the lack of shuttle launches. Um, he's actually checking to see if they're uh, remodeling into a cafeteria, creating um, uh, shuttle lunches. I was hoping Jonah would jump in with the pun. Did not happen. But when he gets back, he's going to have a lot to report on. Not many podcasts have a correspondent. We do. Uh, Today we have uh, Corey Brennan. Uh, Corey spoke with us a little bit back when Dave Haas came in. He's got a record out called Mutt. Uh, Corey is a remarkable singer, songwriter, and we were very lucky that Jonah reached out to him and got him to come by. Yeah, I uh, yeah he was here with Dave, and I thought that was fun. And then I caught him on the revival tour, and he just blew my mind. And I was like, we should have him come by again. So, um, you yeah. know, a lot of people leave concerts. Jonah hangs. I hung out for a little bit, and uh, yeah, in a cool way, because most people can't hang, <laughs> and most people you don't <laughs> you want can. to hang. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, it was fun. It was you know that was a great show too. It was Chuck um, and. Tom Gable now, Laura Jane Grace, Laura Jane Grace, yes. and uh, Dan from the Alkaline Trio, and, and Dave Haas, and uh, yeah, it was a fun night hanging. Do you with find those that Dan? I want to get Dan in there because I love Dan, and I, and and I have I have Dan is in the emergency room. I have that record, uh-huh. um, and I like his Alkaline songs a lot. Do you find that he sounds like Colin Hay for Minute Work, or is that just me? I can see it a little bit. Okay. I can see it a little. And I don't mean that, no, because I love Colin Hay. I right, love right. his solo stuff, so I think that's that's a, a great compliment, and I like that dude a lot. Talk to him. Yeah, well, he's talk, a nice guy. All those guys in Alkaline, I think, yes. are nice dudes. So we'll have to grab them on. Skiba's got what? A, Matt Skiba and the Secrets? Yeah, they just played the Bell House. And yeah, and our former guest, Hunter. Yes. From AFI is playing bass. Right on. Um, I heard the show was really good. I was at the Bell House the other night for our other friend, Julie Klausner's a great live Julie podcast. Klausner. And her, which was amazing. She's um, just so we have, so basically when we do a live podcast, we, we have, she set the bar. She set the bar so insanely high that i feel like if we could do a tenth of what she did it would be amazing so uh we're gonna put this out to the listener uh, i'm not sure if we we've put this out before but we, we would love you to contact us um you can go to our website when we do a live podcast should we have performances we talk to a number of musicians should we have a band play 
I open it up to the room. I think we've discussed this before. Yeah, or tweet at us at, uh, at Going Off Track. Oh, yeah, even better. And if just say, yeah. Have a band, don't have a band. Yeah, and and if a band, maybe suggestions, maybe former guests, maybe not, maybe... Uh, you could do a revival tour of all the guests. <laughs> regardless, no puppet show, right? We decided that. Well, marionettes are cool. Um, Vanessa hasn't broken out her ventriloquist act in a while. Holy shit. I could see if her that. and her puppet Trudy are around. I don't know where Trudy is right now, but probably at Vanessa's apartment. Holy shit. See, this is now forming in my head. We could have a live podcast. Could Trudy do a podcast? <laughs> Possibly. Trudy is uh, wears all Tommy Hilfiger, and she's a puppet. And Vanessa used to take her around with her. Was like really into it, and would just like go to the library or something and just bring Trudy. But is she a good ventriloquist? Uh, no. <laughs> More but that makes it almost Trudy better. A good dummy is what I want to know. <laughs> she's Trudy's great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we were really into the kind of humor that's just really bad. But but. Trudy's really great and has a great voice, but Vanessa's, it's hard for her to do the closed mouth. Do, do all kids go through like a ventriloquist phase where they just think that's fascinating or is that just me? No. We, we were in college at this point. <laughs> oh, okay. So. I, 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 I regressed you a little bit there. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> that works out well. But I don't know, in college, like stuff gets, I, like, I find college is like, I think really where like your personality and taste form. I always make a joke that when I would talk to young kids who'd be like, oh, this band is so good. And I'm like, look, that band is a flash in the pan. They're going to be gone in a few years. Just wait till you go to college and get into Tom Waits like everybody else. Then then your tastes are going to form, you know? And it's usually Tom Waits like is like at the apex of it. You know, it's like that you figure that out and you can always like judge where in someone's like, like where in the pantheon of songwriting your friends are. If they're either listening to a lot of Bob Dylan or a lot of Tom Waits, who you're going to gravitate towards is who you're going to be friends with. I found in college. Yeah. Although I think that that's think now kids are listening to like Steve Aoki and like (laughs) and like EDM and all that, all that, you know, dubstep stuff. So I wonder if they're going to have that same kind of cultural experience at all. I don't know, because that—I mean—that that stuff was around then too. You know, I mean that—that's what gets me about everything that's hot and new, is that none of it is hot and new, like like zero of it. And I'm very offended at musical innovation because I listen to Skrillex. I mean, we we know Sonny, right? And or uh, talk to Sonny. I should say we know him, but like it sounds like the techno. I would go. The industrial techno I would go dance to at tracks when I was in high school in D.C. You know, it's interesting because it, what, well, what's happening is that that music, it's this is this is the first time that it's starting to recycle itself, I think, because electronic music has been so new. Mm-hmm. Right. It hasn't it hasn't come around the way. All, I mean, we've seen you've seen garage rock mm-hmm. and rockabilly and like those things have had like four incarnations, you know. But, like, yeah, like, electronic music was, for so long, it was so innovative, and every and everything sounded different, but now it's been around long enough that it's going to, that, yeah, it's going... You, you, could, you could tell that you're exactly correct about electronic come back, being cyclical finally is because hip-hop finally started sampling, like, techno, you know? And, and hip-hop is, is the kind of music, like, the point of it is sampling, you know? It's, it's you're going to use what you're listening to so going to the club that's what you're going to hear so for timbaland to start sampling like techno beats that makes sense right. you know and rapping over that kind of thing right um but so what i'm saying is all you aspiring musicians out there just do something for 
crying yeah. out loud. It's killing me. Although you, we all can't be as lucky as Corey Brandon and just be like, oh, I have this awesome voice. I'm just going to pick up a guitar and write all these amazing songs. How good is he? Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's great. And for especially for someone who kind of didn't really start writing their own material until kind of later in life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he talks about that. We just let him talk about it. Yeah. That's probably why. Talk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Corey. Corey. <laughs> that was in stereo. Or is this all in stereo? <laughs> I don't know. I always get confused. All right. <laughs> Corey Brandon. It's going on I felt like I was like that with Chuck for a long time, and now we're sort of friends, but it's yeah. still weird. It's hard to be like that with Chuck because he's so unassuming. Yeah. He's like such a... Come on, brother. No, totally. <laughs> totally. Come out to the house. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a, I killed a deer this morning with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna- we're gonna have him on at some point. We're gonna have all these clips of of, of Chuck Reagan lines. Yeah, yeah, we have so many. Especially when Jason George were here, I was like, "What's that like being in a band with that dude? Is he like building canoes and stuff?" And they're like, "No, it's just like cool." Like, well, Dave, when I guess we did the thing in December here, and Dave was doing it. He was telling the story about Chuck catching a fish with his bare hand, and he told it like, you know, they're in a boat, and it's like, shh. And just reaches in. <laughs> but the true story is so much more manly. The true story is he's wrestling in a uh, like a tuna or something, like he's he's fishing and and it like uh, the line broke and this is fifty pound fish and the line broke at the last minute and so he dove in the water and wrestled it out. No! The truth is more like something out of it's more mythological than the actual shh and grabbing a fish. He dove in the water after and, a fish? Yeah, and wrestled out this big fish. He had been fighting it a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the line broke last minute and he and I guess he had worn it out, but he wrestled the fish out. I'm like, that's so much cooler than the other story. That's this is how tall tales begin. <laughs> this is the legend of Chuck Reagan. Yeah. Soon he will have that soon that tuna will be his companion. He should have a ballad. Yeah. There should be a ballad of Chuck Reagan. <laughs> I, I freaked him out. I met him at a wedding, and uh, I was just kind of standing there, and I did one of the double takes. What? I went, You're Chuck Reagan. And he went, Yeah, hey. And I was like, Hi. <laughs> I think I was really drunk and said something to the point of, I really like you. Well, now I've ruined every conversation we're going to have, so I'm just going to walk away. Yeah, yeah. Hope you don't recognize me the next time, <laughs> please. <laughs> and he probably would. So when last you were here, uh, you were hanging with uh, Dave Haas, and that was you guys were uh, doing revival stuff, right? No, actually, we had done a run just ourselves. Just you guys, okay. Me and him in a right, okay. shitty rental car. Uh, that'll do it. And then you came through with Dave and Chuck, what, a couple months ago? did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Oh, oh the God, that was exhausting. That was the double night. Oh, yeah, right. Chuck was like, come on out, man. It's going to be uh, 28 shows. And then, it, you know, he's like, oh, it's going to be... 30 shows. It's going to be 33 shows in 32 days. We did two shows that I remember night. that. Was that the, that, so it was the only night you did two shows? Uh, that was the only night we okay. did two shows. I thought yeah. that was every night. I was like, wow, these guys are hardcore. No, no. He was trying to do that. We had a day off, one day off on that tour, and he was trying to fly from, it was between San Francisco and then we had the day off between that and L.A., and he was trying to fly out to Vancouver on the day off. I was just like, man, <laughs> just take the day off. I know you're working. So how's that? How's the? You saw the revival tour. I've only read about it. I haven't seen it yet. What's how does that that whole tour work? It's great, man. He's got a cool thing. He's just uh, it's real democratic. You you know you learn two of everybody's songs. Everybody learns it. So you have the you have four across the front, and uh, you come at the same time, and everybody plays on the first four songs, one from each person that they've written, and then you break off into individual sets, and then you close it out the same way, and then but of course in the meantime he's bringing up guests like whoever whoever's around town or sometimes whoever's on the fucking street <laughs> what? Know, we would joke around we walk around and there'd be some you know uh musician just playing and uh 
<laughs> and Joe would be like, you like, there's tonight's opener. <laughs> you know, because Chuck's just so, like, uh, welcoming and, and like, he just, he'd hear a street musician and get him up to play in front of 700 people, you know, like, play a song or two. That's awesome. Which is really cool on paper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes, sometimes it's really surprising and works out great. Not always. <laughs> It's like communism. It's good in theory. Yeah, exactly. But in practice, everybody gets screwed. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I was joking with uh, these guys on email because uh, trying to figure out, you know, that, who was going to make it to the podcast. Cause sometimes the interviews are just Jonah and I, sometimes all four of us, Brad, uh, the three of us. And uh, we didn't know if they're going to make it. And I said, that's fine. Jonah can just listen to my accent come back the longer I talk to Corey. <laughs> yeah. Does it resurface? Dude, it's the worst. It's like, because I'm from North Carolina. Okay. And it depends on who I'm speaking to and the duration. So by the end of it, I'm going to be doing, all right, like it's going right, yeah. to slip back into it. Yeah, mine, mine morphs according to how much time I spent with family. Like mine is, uh, you know, I'm from Mississippi, but my, my uncles, you know, <sighs> they talk about like this and they in no hurry to get to the end of their sentence. <laughs> you know, and I start relaxing when I get down there, but I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a hyper so I'm, I'm talk rather fast for where I'm from. Yeah, I, I have I have those people in my family. Yeah. I, I have the ones. I have an uncle in Florida. My name is not Stephen. It's Stephen. <laughs> S T A Y V A N. Stephen. And his and his uh his he's literally got that gruff like, "What the hell are you doing? I'll kick your ass!" And that's hello, I love you. Yeah, that's good morning. Basic, that's some it. coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that's him. That's like hi. Now, if I remember correctly, you were uh, born in Mississippi. No, wait, you're. From Mississippi, but like you were born in Tennessee, like born in Memphis. Memphis, yeah. right? Yeah, there just were no hospitals yeah. where I'm from. So yeah. They, so how big a town is it? Where you're um, from? Well, now we're all my family's from uh, my father and my mother's side. Not related, not kin. <laughs> um, they're from uh, Arkabutla, Mississippi, and uh, that's a town of maybe 300. Wow. You know, yeah. And there's no, it, they don't have they have they have a gas pump now. They got a stop sign. They don't even stop light. They have a stop, and it's a, like a little short stop sign, so everybody blows through it. But uh, yeah, so it's sm- relatively small. But my father was a jet mechanic for FedEx, so he moved us up to the northernmost town of Mississippi. Okay. He didn't want to commit to Tennessee, but um, so I grew up right on the state line. Yeah, between, oh wow! Yeah. So in that small a town, like aside from your, well, how'd your dad get to be a jet mechanic? Uh, Navy okay. he trained in the Navy. Actually, was in Virginia Beach uh, for a bit um, in Norfolk. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so that's what Memphis is, really. I mean, FedEx is there, so that's the distribution kind of thing. So he, uh, yeah, he worked there for almost thirty years. So. Yeah, FedEx and that Elvis guy, right? Yeah, yeah, some, something about him. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually gonna be in Memphis in a couple of weeks, and the only place I've been, my band played show with Lucero, I think at Young Avenue Deli. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's the only place I've been. Is there anything else? Oh yeah, I plenty. Should, yeah, okay. I'll I mean, give, I'm sure I'll give you the number stuff. and give you the. Yeah, yeah, there's a. Oh, there's great. I'll give you the dirtball guy to Memphis. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're gonna be there over a weekend. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm driving down, and my friend bought a school bus. We're driving from Rhode Island to Austin. Like you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like She's pretty do. fucking hippie, as my wife said. She's like, Jonah, that's hippie. I know. Well, my friend called me. He's like, dude, me and my wife bought the school bus. It's a short bus, um, so which I think will be easier to park and navigate. But he's yes. like, we're just going to camp out and drive. Do you want to come? And I was like, my first instinct was like, no, nah, I can't do that. And then I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to do it. Has it got a governor on it? So we'll go over 55? I don't know. That's how they come. Really? Yeah, yeah. you got You can take them off. off but. Mm-hmm. I'm I'd recommend sh- that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the, sure. the governor will will extend the trip. 
<laughs> Slightly. Memphis is great. It's a great town. I love it. I miss it. I'm in Nashville now. Um, you know, there's the contention, the old contention between Memphis and Nashville. Wait, so you, so you like Memphis more than Nashville? Yeah, I do. Interesting. It's uh, it's just funkier and grittier and yeah. yes, <laughs> and I, I, I know more people there. You know, I, it's, all my friends are there, but uh, Nashville's still central to the country. Right. Good to tour out of. I was in Austin for a while and. Um, great city, but when you can be in Mexico before you can get out of Texas, it's not so good for touring. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes indeed. So, what's the timeline? So, so you grew up. Uh, you, your dad didn't commit to Tennessee; still stayed in Mississippi, but yeah. right on the state line. So, when did music start? Uh, oh, twelve, maybe twelve, thirteen, playing guitar and like metal bands and just awful music. Metal, uh, yeah, yeah, like define hair metal. <laughs> I was in a death metal band i was in a black metal band called black like me named after the book uh and uh yeah and i went straight from those bands to a country band i was just i played guitar you know i didn't sing until i was in my 20s so i was playing guitar back then you come from a musical family was there someone yeah. you played yeah my father was a drummer uh, my brother's a drummer his father was uh, a guitar player his father was a fiddle player um um, yeah, yeah. Everybody sings or plays. people don't realize there's a difference between fiddle and violin. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I joke about that. I've got the I've got a new song, and it's about I joke that it's about my ex. Um, but if you're going to write a love song, you should go ahead and put an insult in there just in case because you don't know how things are going. <laughs> and the insult is, uh, I, I was like, I was like, I was, just, I was saying this in Germany, and I'm like, I'm like, well, she thought she was a, a fiddle player, but it turned out she only owned a violin. Nice. And that's, that's what I say, and then, and I'm like, and, and the Germans are just like. I was like, it's funnier where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's funnier. Yeah, yeah. If you're talking like, to a German. Yeah, yeah, really. And I, lo- I oh, love no, touring in Germany. <laughs> it's my favorite place to tour, and they're great, but they're always like, we laugh later. <laughs> Which I think they don't. I don't think they go home and laugh. I'm very, I, I, I spend a lot of time in Germany. And I love it there. It's a great, great place. It's my favorite place in Europe to play. The, the Man, they, they're on it. The sound mm-hmm. guys might as well have lab coats on. They're running back and forth on the monitors, and they're really taking pride. The German engineering is not a myth. No, they take that shit very, it's very great. Serious. I love it. And there's so many cities there. Like my band did two runs there, and it's like you can play like I feel like a month of dates just in Germany. We, when I go to Europe, and it's it's because I tour when I've I've been over there always with John Snodgrass and Drag the River, and so that they're oh, yeah. they're booking agents out of Berlin, and uh, so usually two thirds of the shows are in Germany, and it's great. Just great. Man, the city's over there. And you can double it up now that, I mean, this is going to sound silly, but when I was living in in Germany, it was two Germanys. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And when it, you know, integrated, they just, you know, there's a lot more places you can go play that you couldn't before. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Kind of that fence. Without climbing. Yeah. Yeah, Well, some places they didn't have it. I remember my dad made a wrong turn one time and uh, all of a sudden a helicopter appeared over our car. Oh, wow. And he spun right around and drove back. We just literally ended up in East Germany. Oops. Whoops, which you didn't want to go to anyway. Um, so, uh, so you're playing guitar in, in various bands that had metal in them, and then the the country band. Did it shift then, or were you just were you like a, a go to guitar player? Kind of a go to, yeah. I mean, I was still playing my BC Rich metal guitar in the country oh, band. Yeah. You know, I mean, I still I was complete wanger. <laughs> uh, what color? Uh, it was. Uh, <laughs> 
It was blue with black crackle finish. Oh, yeah, baby. I had that one. I had. Uh, I still have my Steve Vaia. Uh, it's not seven string, but a six string guitar with the handle in Dude, it. The handle. With, with, oh yeah. no! Has a crazy pickguard with like. The... It has a yeah. It's got it's got a. Uh, oh, like flowers and vine. It's got a vine up the neck. Oh. It's very subtle. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that functional, the handle? Or is it just like yeah, an dude. aesthetic thing? Well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to lift it over your head while you're playing, uh, <laughs> exactly how else would you do that? <laughs> I heard a story about Steve I that he and, he in the studio, maybe you know this, Brad, that he, he put um, a, a, an individual pickup under every string. Well, you can do that now, yeah. I'm sure he was the first to do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this, is, this is before we had drugs to make you stop doing those kinds of things. I'm going to put a pickup under every string and don't clean it. Yeah. Keep it very specific. Um, when you were in the country band, was that it for metal? And then. Uh, yeah, actually. In retrospect, I guess that was it for metal. Uh, but that wasn't like led to what I was doing. I mean, I just. I was just playing guitar, you know. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't start writing songs until I was. Uh, kind of the summer between 24 and 25, you know, oh, I, wow. I kind of started late. Now, were you touring in these bands or were you just playing out? No, it was just around, you know, local gigs and, uh, yeah, maybe some stuff in Arkansas, but yeah, nothing, didn't get very far. Right. Yeah, we are just, uh, it was really just terrible bands. <laughs> so did you, so like the, like high school, college, that kind of thing, or you just wanted to play? Just wanted to, oh, oh yeah, I went to, I went to college. Yeah. Uh, down in Delta State, down in Cleveland, Mississippi, and I went to uh, University of Memphis briefly too, just for music. It was um, you couldn't major in uh, music unless you were a vocal or piano major. And I didn't do either at the time. Arguable whether I do either now, but I, uh, I, I went under <laughs> under the guise of music education, like I was going to teach it back. But oh. I don't like people, so I mean, there was no, there was, I was never <laughs> going to teach anything. They were really expensive music lessons, is what they ended up being. So. Fair enough. Yeah. But that, you got, like, theory and, and yeah, reading music. theory and, um, uh, you know, it was in the choir down there, which is as lame as it was, it actually helps because I, uh, it helped with, like, hearing harmonies and things. And The most I ever learned about playing music, because I was an, an awful drummer who can barely read drum music, but also drum music depends on who's writing it, you know. Yeah. But my mom made me, when I was, like, 10, be in the bell choir with her. And that's how I learned how to read music. Was literally in like the church bell choir, and I hated every second. A church bell choir, yeah. like seriously, literally you ring a whole like slew of bells in front of you, and you'd have to look and ring and play the one stupid Christmas song, ding dong ding. It's the only freaking bell song there is. That was how I learned music. I can never do the sight singing stuff. Like I took some of those classes in college, and I, with my mouth and my brain, just can't. That's impressive though, and people can be like G and just. Knock it out. Oh yeah, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not one of those people. And and I, I, most of the stuff I learned, you know, was all in my head, and none of it went into my hands or my writing or my guitar playing or any of that stuff. It was just I could do it on paper and I could tear down a piece of Brahms or whatever, show you wh- how the, this is working. It was all like math problems almost. And then maybe it seeped its way into composition, but I'm probably not. I mean, I I still write relatively simple songs were you listening when did you start listening to country stuff oh yeah i mean that growing up time. it's it's you're inundated with it you can't really wash it off so you were playing in metal bands but you're still listening to country stuff no i mean i, I went away from it okay. went pretty far away from it as far as possible you know i mean <laughs> you uh I, it's i was being raised in mississippi wasn't a farm you know i was in a suburb with my little eddie fiola gt pro performer and my little shitty skateboards and and whatever music i could get a hold of you know um 
little hood right down the street that gave me my first cigarette and beer also gave me, uh, you know, uh, you get Iron Maiden and uh, Easy at the same time and, and, and whatever, you know, Black Flag and whatever. Yeah, that sounds like the suburbs. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it was that. And still, of course, I was glued to MTV, you know, in that age. And so uh, It's always that weird triumvirate of of CDs that, like, stick in your head. I mean, that totally makes sense. Easy Iron Maiden and Black Flag, like, that goes together. For us, it was... Uh, Joshua Tree, Among the Living, and Three Feet High and Rising. Like that was, yeah. that was like always in the car. Those three records, because everybody could agree on it. Right. You know, I was hanging out the other day, and it hit me. I was like, Ice Cube is in N.W.A. Like that's <laughs> insane. If you look at that dude now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I think some commercial was on for like Burger King he was in or something. I was like, this is insane. Yeah. He's, yeah. I was someone uh, posted on Twitter that twenty years ago, like last week, was when Angel Dust by Faith No More came out. Really? 20 years ago. Huh. I was like, I went to that tour, Helmet opened. And then I started thinking, okay, 2002, so that was nine, or 2012, so that was 20 years ago, that was 92, so 30 years ago was 82. That's when Milo Goes to College by the Descendants came out. <laughs> That's crazy. What? You know what's so funny? I remember being at the CD store and holding Angel Dust and holding Megadeth's Countdown to Extinction and being like, I don't, can only buy one. What should I get? And I bought the Megadeth record. I think you might have. I don't know. I think you might have went the right. Really? No. That one had like Symphony of Destruction on it, like Skin on My Teeth. Like that was a good Megadeth. Angel Dust wasn't my favorite of the Faith. Oh, that's my favorite. Really? Yeah, that's one of my top five solid records. Yeah. Yeah. But which is your favorite Faith No More? Um, Self-titled, I guess. Oh, that's Uh, a good record. First one, yeah. Way back, Chuck Mosley. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I was into them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had all those on cassette. Yeah, like uh, introduce yourself and yeah. The drummer turned me on to all the Mr. Bungle stuff. The drummer of the one of the bands I was in, the metal band, Mr. Yeah. Bungle. I was yeah. just oddly enough singing them this morning, and <clears throat> they have a song. <laughs> and this is why. Not that odd. And this is why I'm singing the song. <laughs> no, the reason why is hilarious. <laughs> is <clears throat> it's 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 off that first record, and I can't remember the name of the song, but it like begins with what could basically be a rap. And the rap is like, I want to lock Betty Crocker, knock her upper in the side. And it's all about food. And then the end of the song is like this Chili Peppers, we came to potty. And it's not party. It's literally potty. And I'm thinking about it because my kids are over there opening the toilet seat. And so I'm like singing that and going, this is very odd suburban father. <laughs> you can maybe make that the theme song. Play that every oh, yeah. time. Maybe a Pavlovian response. You could probably even. It's time. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, you can train them. They're Pavlovian enough right now. See a bottle and start shrieking. No, can you ask for it? No, shrieking works. They know that because then you give it to them and they stop screaming. Mm, that's funny. Like, uh, the new record I have has a, uh, a, a nude woman on the front. And somebody last night was like, uh, and like our uh, nine-month-old loves this record. Every time <laughs> it starts going crazy when it sees it. <laughs> I love how people react to things like that, especially kids. Um, so uh, I think it's interesting how you went from like country to metal and you said you went far away. But the point of metal, like I've you know, seen you know the two Iron Maiden documentaries a couple times this past year. They talk about how they are like, we didn't play punk because we wanted to be able to play. And country, you have to be able to play. Some and of it. Metal, you have to be able to play. Well, there's country you can't play. <laughs> Wait, well, there's you know there's really like rural rustic stuff that's relatively easy. You know, it's not like the chicken picking fast stuff. Right. You know? Like bluegrass, you got to be able to play. Damn. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah. do you? Yeah, yeah. And uh, even to the point of like, it's really kind of annoying if you ever <laughs> met any bluegrass players. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I get it. You you know all the notes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So after school, um, music education, which fascinates me because that it is like math. That's probably why I never could figure it out. Um, then when did you decide? I think I can, I've got a couple of songs in me. Yeah, it was much later. I I, w- I would play. Um, I was always really kind of shy and paranoid about playing uh, and singing, especially. And so I, I slowly. I moved up to Memphis after high school and started working bartending at a um, place called the Peabody, which is the old sort of historic hotel there. And uh, everybody comes through there, and so you kind of got to, you can't be like a little wallflower when you're bartending. And so that got me out of my shell a little bit, I guess. And I started playing like open mic things and, you know, covering Neil Young best I could. And, um, slowly worked out of it and got a little more confident. And, but yeah, it really wasn't until I was like 24. Well, you worked, you, you played Neil Young to get out of your shell? You uh, just, you <laughs> set your sights lower. I slowly, <laughs> I just slowly in a high voice eked my way out of my shell. No, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I, just, I hope you only did songs off trans. I think that would be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> off the rockabilly record, too. <laughs> um, no, yeah, and that and Lemonhead stuff, and it was a little more my range. But, uh, yeah, that was a, it was a place called the Daily Planet, a little brick shithole um, in Memphis. It's still there. Um, uh, Todd Snyder, got him Todd Snyder, songwriter out of there. Uh, he used to play down there, and he's got all these great stories about it. But, uh, yeah, I just uh, that helped out a lot. Did you try putting together a band, like being in a band as opposed to just yourself? Or? No, no, I just, uh, I've never really had bands with my own music. I pieced together one here and there if I do a festival or something, but mm-hmm. it's almost always solo. I just can't can't find a way to pay people right, you know? It's like I have all these great musician friends, and they're like, we'll go on the road with you. I'm like, yeah, but at the end of the night, you know, you break up nothing five ways. I just, I just feel bad about it. And it's a slow burn. Yeah. So did you know Ben and the Lucero guys when you... Have you known those guys for a long time? Yeah, we all started at the same time. Okay. Uh, and that's actually when I met them, because it was Memphis, obviously, really small music scene, and... And I started about the, the same time they did. We met at a radio station. Um, and, yeah, no, we were fast friends. And, hell, I lived with those guys for years in that w- little shitty warehouse. Um, just a concrete warehouse with padlocks on the on the doors. And, yeah, no, old buddies, good guys. That's funny. I had a CD of Ben's band before that, like Red 7 mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. I know that band. That was him. You do? Maybe that wasn't him. Uh yeah, um, it was like a uh, it's, it was uh, like a more of a punk band. Or yeah, something. yeah, and his mm-hmm. voice is really high. Yeah, I think that was him. <laughs> totally, I remember that. Yeah, he loves it when you bring that up. Really? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, I actually have an early, early copy of a, a his first band somebody had given to me, and he would lose mine if he knew I had that. So it's pretty good. <laughs> Take a walk with the dead men, Rome. <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty. His voice is way up there, so. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he's he's got a checkered past. But the, the Red Seven was a great band. I, mean, yeah. was, I never caught them. They were, you know, he's from Little Rock originally. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then when he moved to Memphis, he started Lucero, and that's about when I met those guys. So I find it interesting how a lot of bands will, you know, or artists will find a town and go to and let that kind of be their wellspring. You know, I always thought about uh, Nashville, Memphis. I never, it never occurred to me because I don't know. I guess I always think of you know Beale Street, and it's like, oh, it's got that that bluesy kind of element that and Elvis is everywhere. It's I never thought of it being like a a place to launch from. Yeah, I mean it's got it's got a lot of stuff other than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and especially with uh the stuff that came before all of us, like the nineties and stuff were 
he was definitely influenced by a lot of the music that came out of there, but it was stuff like the Oblivions mm-hmm. and Compulsive Gamblers, a lot of the garage stuff mm-hmm. um, that, for better or worse, started, you know, influenced like the Strokes and the Hives and those mm-hmm. bands, you know, they, they sort of were doing what, uh, a little more sheeny version of what the Oblivions were doing, you know, and they were, which was just taking old sort of 50s stuff. And, and it wasn't really punk as as much as just, shitting all over it it was just this great, i mean it's great but it was, there was still technique there but it was uh those oblivion records are fucking fantastic yeah, i don't know so them. i'm gonna have to go I, back and check it out i've been yeah. listening to so much raining sound lately yeah yeah and then the oblivion split yeah. jack oblivion and, and and greg oblivion cartwright and he formed the raining sound jack formed the tearjerkers tennessee tearjerkers just great bands. yeah so good greg's one of the the, the greatest songwriters i mean he's when he moved to Asheville, north carolina memphis lost his biggest fucking rock star he's he writes some of the best songs Dude, I love hearing bands. I now have to go like find. Now I'm gonna go find everything they've recorded. Cause that's what I do. Like, you can't just start with one. I have to get all of it. There's a lot of it. And they were, it was very incestuous. They were all in different bands and uh, compulsive gamblers. It's uh, a good name. Yeah, it's a great band. There's, there's a lot of that stuff that was in Memphis for a while. So throughout all this, did you ever like sit in with these bands? Did you ever play? No, no. They were kind of before my thing. I mean, I played gigs with with Greg um, mm. and. Uh, Scott from the Grifters, who was another big right. band in Memphis for a while. Um, but uh, Big Ass Truck was doing their thing. A big Ass Truck? Yeah, yeah. Steve playing with the Hold Steady now. Uh, Steve Selvage is a guitar player. Right yeah. So when, so as you know, as a guitar player who can play, which I can tell you're one of those people who sells himself short, but I've heard you, you can play. Um, did they ever... Did like other bands like Lucero, like, can you come in and sit in and do this and play? No, not really. I mean, well, actually, Lucero did. Ben asked me to join Lucero one time. Brian, the guitar player, got a little uh, uh, tired of being on the road. And so there was that one record where he was gone uh, that much further west, I guess. And my buddy Todd Gill uh, filled in, did a great job. Dude, Paper Hearts. Yeah, yeah. My, so we, we did a show at Young Avenue Deli with them when Todd was in the band. Mm. And I became friends with him. And like, he got to do a set of Paper Hearts songs. And I was like, I don't recognize these songs. And I got. Those records, he only played on that one Lucero record, I mm-hmm, think, right? Yeah. But his other band was incredible. Hmm. Yeah, great band. So good. And then a band after that that, for some reason, has slipped my damn mind. Uh, oh, really? Uh, I didn't even know that. But they were really great, too. Um, but yeah, he's up in Fayetteville. I, I did a couple years up there in Fayetteville, Fayetteville. Arkansas. I used to live there. <laughs> oh, no, the Arkansas one. Oh, God, I was going to uh, say. Definitely, definitely a different town. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah, the North Carolina one. I don't remember much one of the first four or five times i moved as a child um uh so uh you're playing in memphis you got these you've got these songs did you immediately just start touring out or did you just start working around the city i just started in the city okay. yeah um it was a band called the uh, sally max they were like a um an irish band they played you know pogues and different things and and, and they actually gave me my first gig there at the hotel my first you know with my own stuff right and uh yeah, things actually went pretty fast. Uh, the High Tone is a club that's still there. You should check that out okay. if anything's going on when you go through. Um, and so got to do the first record relatively fast. I wrote a ton of songs all at once. And um, and so things you know, kind of uh, took off relatively, you know, I mean, on a small scale. But, yeah, for me. Yeah, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, from the little acorn grew the mighty oak. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I, as, as much as I loathe award shows and end up watching the Grammys every year, even though I'm like, I'm not going to watch this crap. There's always some smart person who wins Best New Artist and says, actually, I remember it was years ago, oddly enough, Hootie and the Blowfish, as ridiculous as they were, won Best New Artist and went, yeah, we just won Best New Artist. Um, who thought that you could play and tour for 10 years and be considered a new artist. Exactly. That was their speech. And I was like, oh, respect level rising. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that was the great... Then it plateaued. What? Then it plateaued. Yeah, totally. Then I was a big <laughs> fan. Yeah. Uh, the old school version, that's Mississippi John Hurt, you know, and the old blues guy. And he was, uh, you know, when and when Dylan comes along and there's this folk resurgence in the 60s and uh, he's uh, he's discovered... You know, or he's rediscovered, and, he, and and they're interviewing him and all these things, and now he's playing all over in Paris and all these things. And uh, he's like, I've been, he's like, I still live on the same farm I was born on. He's like, I just, I never went anywhere. He's like, I've, been, <laughs> I've been doing this the whole time, you know. Thanks, Thanks. for rediscovering me. I've yeah. been right here. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. It's like, it's like you know, somebody did that documentary about uh, Ramblin' Jack Perkins, and uh not the guy. Wait, is it, am I getting the name wrong? Oh, Ramble Jack Elliott. Elliot, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it's one of those people like you watch that and then you get really mad at Bob Dylan. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He was he was <clears throat> definitely uh, doing that. I mean, he had a. But then you know, it's like anything. I mean, he, he his genuine love for that kind of music turned it into something authentic in his own. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, talking, you know, Ed, Ed Springsteen still sings in a Southern accent. For, for oh, yeah. sake, you know, and he's you know he's one of my heroes. But it's like you know someone's love for that music can, can turn it into authentic music uh, this is this is what annoys me about country music and and i don't know uh like like where where, where and how i it's, it's very awkward to say you know what's your music like when it's like i write songs however they come out it's how they come out um but you obviously have a southern accent mm-hmm. when someone like keith urban from australia sings in a southern accent <laughs> annoys the living shit out of me it's because funny. just because you hurl a twang on it does not make it country yeah and I know he can, and I have friends who like have been on tour with him, and he's like the coolest guy, really nice, can play his ass off, yeah, he's a good guitar like player. like ridiculous. But like, why is that? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's more of the the David Cross bit about you know everybody's got that redneck voice everywhere. You know, have you heard that bit? He's like yeah. he's like he's like. He's like, fuck you, I'm from Teaneck, New Jersey. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like everybody's got that. Fuck you, I'm from, you know, uh, Anchorage, Alaska. It's like, that so rural is rural in a way, you know, and so maybe there, there's his, where he comes from, because Australia is pretty rural for the most part. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They got real rednecks. Yeah. They just don't have a... Uh... An acceptable so, redneck so accent. Singing yeah, that but it, accent. Yeah, exactly. Singing that Be the accent. guy. Be the guy you know, who's like... I don't know if they can do that. They call, they call like, Hell's Angels bikies down there. Yeah. So I don't know if they can... I don't know if they can... It's not that... As tough as they are, they don't the, sound tough. That takes the sting out of a Hell's Angel, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, you a bikey? Thwack. The first time I heard that, I just laughed my ass. Yeah. And nobody like, wants what? to hear, there's a tear in my fosters. You know, it's not, <laughs> not going to fly. And with that accent, eh? <laughs> <laughs> What happened? Well, my surfboard broke. <laughs> oh, God. It ruined, sounds so rough. Ruined my life. <laughs> it is a good, like, that is a, I mean, that's a good point because it is annoying, but, you know, you can't do country without that twang. You know, it's kind of like, remember, like, I mean, Green Day used to get accused of sounding uh, like they had a British accent early oh, yeah? on. And, like, if you listen to it now, it doesn't sound that way. It just sounds like he was trying to punch his punches you know his words kind of the way the sex well, doesn't, doesn't uh, um 
uh, Tim Armstrong, and he pushed like the. He has that weird accent. Well, yeah. That just might be him. Yeah, <laughs> just him. <laughs> Actually, I met him once, and I was like, "We we met at a Ramon show," and he's like, "Ah, I remember." And I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> Tim, I, I, I love Tim, but he turned to me the say, he turned to me like after our first show of the tour we did with them, and said. Oh, man, great, great set. You know, you guys should really come out with us sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, actually, funny you should say that. We'll be with you for the next two weeks. How's that? <laughs> That's funny. Would you say you identify yourself as, as a country artist? No. No. I don't. No. Uh, I mean, like I said, you can't wash it off, but mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't consciously avoid it. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I don't. That's almost the point of the music that I do is, you know, it's kind of genreless. Yep. It's, it's whatever. And you did that tour with Lisa Brownlee, that country... The country pretty, throwdown. She was like, really excited you were coming on, by the yeah, way. Yeah, that was fun. It was like the Warp Tour people, you know, their their cooter version of the Warp Tour. And uh, <laughs> it was it was fun. We were on sort of the Zamboni stage. We were the... Uh, we'd do the songwriter stage. There's an old club in Nashville called the Bluebird, um, which is kind of like the, the mecca, the shrine where... We, Willie and Waylon, everybody started off writing. It's really incredibly hard to get a gig there. But so we got to play on the Bluebird stage, but it was all songwriters, you know, primarily in Nashville, you know, it's that whole, uh, like, well, y'all had Tim Pan Alley and things like that. Back in the day, Nashville, you can make a ride and make a living just with pen and paper. They're, they're not trying to be artists, they're writing for other artists. And so that was, I was one of the only people on the stage that was sort of uh, odd man out, kind of doing my own playing and writing for me i don't write really for other artists friend of friend of ours who was on the podcast jared cotter who uh you know he's he writes pop songs mm-hmm. basically he just got back from nashville a little while ago and he said he's like and i was writing he's like i was writing country because he's a songwriter he's like you know write everything and he said nashville was the greatest town to be in as a songwriter because songwriter is king oh absolutely whereas in new york like actually said whereas in the pop music world producer is king absolutely Exactly. he was like i loved it he's like i had a ball <laughs> it's true it's true i mean I, that's partially why i'm there too i mean i've got some new uh family obligations and things so i'm there on the side i'm you know i am actually writing country music hitting myself with something blunt and then writing a one layer kind of just awful calculated music on the side because <laughs> my, my own stuff's doing a lot better so it's uh and it's so separate from that that i can uh when I have some spare time, I'm actually throwing my hat in the ring. It probably is a direct result of that country throwdown tour. I met a lot of songwriters that were professional songwriters, and so yeah, I mean, even writing the the worst song like that is still there's pleasure in it, like a crossword puzzle. You know, there's still structure and form, mm-hmm. and it's kind of fun. Or is that River Rivers Cuomo quote that said, uh, uh, "Writing songs is easy. That's why it's hard." Yeah, you know. Yeah, I can see that. Writing, writing the ones that sound easier uh, and you can't see all the seams is very hard. Yeah. Like one of the greatest American songwriters of all time is Tom Petty, you know, and in my opinion. And it's because, I mean, the Tom Petty songs don't, they don't sound like they're these crafted whatever songs, but they're so distilled. They're so yeah. on purpose. Every syllable. You know. Didn't he say the best songs is two, maybe three chords, and that's it? Uh, surely. Yeah. I mean, if he didn't say it, he practices it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not. So occasionally there'll be a fourth chord in the bridge, and it's like, ooh, jazz. <laughs> <laughs> so were a lot of the songs, because I saw some videos of you playing Survivor Blues from a 
few years back. I mean, a lot of songs in the new record have been kicking around for a while. Yeah, some of them. Um, some of them are brand new, but uh, hell, one of them is I, one of the first songs I ever wrote. One of them's 12 years old, 10, 12 years old. Um, but since it took me so long, I mean, it's been... I did that split with Snodgrass, but since my last full length, it's been like 2006. It's been forever. And so I had, you know, 100 and something songs sitting around, and I just sort of picked the ones that sort of went together thematically. Oh, that sounds so pretentious, but I, I wanted to do a record it's as opposed to... <laughs> I wanted to do a record as opposed to, like, the other two were just kind of collections of songs, mm-hmm. and so these songs were all kin. Yeah. Why, what was it, why was it so long between the records? Were you just touring so much? Just, well, touring it? and, you know, the abysmal state of the record industry, yeah. and, and, uh, and I just don't... My, a lot of my buddies just record things at their their friend's house and then they'll put it out and things like that. And I just, I didn't really need anything, not that they do it for ego or anything, but I didn't need it. I didn't, I didn't feel a rush to be like, I need to have something new out and things. So, but I did fund it. I found funding and recorded it my own before any, before Bloodshot came along, before okay, my record cool. label. Um, and because I just took a risk on it. And, uh, and then after I recorded it, I mean, the, I recorded the record two years ago. So it wasn't that long in between. I recorded it two years ago, finally got it mastered after six months, and then had to shop it for a while, nine, ten months, then started doing the contracts, another five months, and it came out six months later. So it's, you know, there's a... I am not uh, uh, marketable, per se. <laughs> you know, so nobody's like, hey, we got to get this out, you know, within a timeline. It's this little snappy thing. It's got to hit right now, or you know, it's... It's folk music, so it's... It doesn't sound like that's, like, the avenue you are approaching or even want. You know, it's, there's, there's, there's a, to, to, you know, get it out, it's got a hit, it's got whatever. That's very, um, uh, expendable, you know? Like, that's, you know, a lot of pop music is expendable, and you don't, you won't hear that song ever again, and, uh, your stuff sounds, uh time tested you know what i mean i hope so yeah i hope there's not a born on date you know yeah. like, at least i'd like to get a good five years out of the songs at if least you have yeah. a song, i'm intrigued you had a song sitting around for 12 years like what made you go okay now it, it had a lot to do with the record and how it was shaping up um the, the record turned out to be sort of a like a choose your own adventure record to go back to the nerd talk we had um it uh a lot of the it's it's not necessarily in a circle but it's very structured to that a lot of uh similar uh situations with different outcomes a lot of the mm-hmm. songs are kind of paired they're mirror songs and i had a song about uh a lovely song for the kids about empty meaningless sex and then that one that was 12 years old was more of uh sex is a little more uh healing in a way and mm-hmm. so it, it paired up nice in the in the story and i was like okay this one will fit here how'd you oh, sorry, go ahead steve no no please after you <laughs> i thought it was uh I saw you play Survivor Blues at the Revival show, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is a great song, and then I got the record, and I was like, oh, it's so different with the band arrangement, and then I listened to the end, and you do it again. Yeah, it's and on the record twice. Yeah, how did that kind of, I thought it was really cool, but I was wondering how that came about, because that's not kind of a traditional kind of thing to do. I guess. No, not at all. It's almost my thesis statement. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like the point of the, the music, you know, and even calling the record Mutt, you know, uh, people just would ask for so long, like, what kind of music do you do? And then they'd get upset if you couldn't sum it up in three words, and so... I just started calling it mutt music. I'll just go to one word, and it's a graspable idea, you know. Um, but yeah, on the record, it uh, I wrote the song, and it kind of had like a you know a joke around that it's my born to run, but the guy and the girl have significant pasts, and they know that running won't do any fucking good. Uh, 
but so I got I recorded it kind of a thin Lizzy sort of <laughs> rock version with a kind of the urgency, and then I felt like maybe the lyrics were getting a little buried, and I recorded a slower you know steel guitar one, and then I liked them both, and I was like you know what this is when I hear songs I hear a song through genre and through whatever coat it's got on and hat it's got on, you know, and it's uh, I, I like it when other people do that if they can hear the song itself, and then. It, it, I almost joked that I could put it back to back, and a lot of people wouldn't even know they were different. So I mean, that there was the same song because some people don't listen to lyrics at all; they really don't. Well, I think a lot of people assume too when songwriters writing a song, everything's autobiographical. I mean, and obviously that song's written about characters. I mean, do you like kind of writing from different points of view? Fine, yeah. take my question, jerk. Was yeah. there really? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and I find that the 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 closer something is to the bone, so is there something that that it means more to me? Or it's, it's harder to write. I I I will I will throw it across the room. I'll put it in a different character. Put it to change the gender or whatever. So a lot of the character songs are actually closer than the ones that sound autobiographical. Yeah, the, the things that are that are dear and touchy. You know, it's easier to deal with them if I'm not standing up there like I've got my fucking diary at my feet. You know, <laughs> if I put them in stories and get distance, uh, I can tell something that's a lot closer. You find as a songwriter, uh, for for like a, a a writer, like you know, literary writer, you know, a novelist, whatever. Um, even Shakespeare, there's a story that every everything that happens to them emotional physical whatever in the back of their head they go oh i gotta remember this like my heart just got broken this is the worst i've ever felt in my life oh, i can use this later you know do you find things like that that your life experience creep up and that you have to make note of them not really i don't uh i, I absolutely understand that mm-hmm. that's a thing but yeah i don't really i'm I, i'm with the uh, john prine's one of my heroes as far as songwriter and he said one time he's like i'd rather have a hot dog than a song you know he's just talking about you know basically i'm not going to split myself open for this you know the idea of the tortured artist cliche you know it's he didn't didn't resonate for him he's like he's like i'd actually have a good time and he said, i guess not so well, much not not so much tortured but just like you know that even you know, even if you're having a happy experience, that 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 will influence. Oh, it, it absolutely works yeah. its way in. I just don't know if it actually hits my brain to oh. you know enough to take the notes uh, note of it. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, everything works in subconscious. It is yeah. hard to write when you're happy. I think though. it is. It's harder. It's really but I think hard. what he does is it, it kind of uh, disengages that if you if you are you know having a ball and then you can put yourself in the character of you know. Uh, fucking Medea I uh, killed my kids uh, shit and then you can write a song from that perspective yeah. and you yeah. don't have to have been swallowing Prozac. well that's what you end up having to do right you kind of have to f- I recall that like if I wasn't tortured or had something terrible to say like you had to kind of come up with a theme well, yeah. right I have a negative slant naturally, you know, I just, I just sort of go there. And so, and somebody asked me that specific question. They're like, can you write when you're happy? I'm like, yeah. I, and when I'm really, really fucking happy, I know it's, it's illusory and trans and I know it's going away. All I have to do is picture it going away and I get desperate. I'm like, yes, fuck yeah, I can write when I'm happy. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be gone in seven minutes. And then I'm not happy anymore. And then I can really write. Because happy is not my natural state. So, I mean, you know, I can appreciate it for for uh, what it is. <laughs> I think the best story of that was, what was that Jason Siegel movie where he, Linda Carly, where he, or that girl breaks up with him and he's naked? Oh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah. Apparently that was real. <laughs> that really happened to him with Linda Carlini and 
uh, while it was happening, he gave me he was like, I was thinking, oh, I got to remember this. This is amazing. Like, I'm naked <laughs> having this conversation. And he's like, this sucks. Like, my girlfriend's breaking up with me, but this is going to be such a good movie. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good scene. Yeah. So uncomfortable. Uh, I talked to him about that. I'm like, oh, how does that work? And he went, well, there's, there, there's a level of erection you can have on film. And he said, because I had to like, I had to like chub up a little bit, so I'd make myself look like you know, a, you know, the dude. You can't have a full on, so I literally had to like go away and then come back and shoot oh the scene. Oh my god, that was like the most distracting part of Watchmen for me. I was like, what yeah. is going on with this naked blue guy? Oh, god. Well, who who sets the level of erection? I mean, that's, a, that's a really good question. Probably, probably somebody there probably, in Hollywood. Probably awful people at the Motion Picture Association of America, which isn't even connected to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a fun documentary. Yeah, um, the, this movie is not yet rated. Yeah, yeah where they trying to it. find the people or whatever. Oh, that'll just that'll just make you angry. Yeah, just pisses you off. It's it's just it's it's the epitome of, um, you know, I can we can show someone's head getting cut off and you know a f- you know ripping someone's heart out and blood everywhere. But you show, you know, a boob or a dick, or you say, "How dare you, my God!" The children—it's—it's. It's, yeah. You really can't look at America and be objective, like it, as though you were from outer space, because you'll just be like, "What the yeah. fuck is wrong with these people?" That makes no. The sense. source of life is forbidden, and yet you can, yeah, you can show a five-year-old a guy putting a gun in his mouth. Yep. You can show, you can like, show the end of life. You can do that on TV. Yeah, founded by pilgrims. <laughs> what are you another, another screwed up bunch of people P- pilgrims who were too chaste for england yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody was railing on like the french recently they just gone over there and they're like yeah i mean honestly they just really they really give americans a hard time and i'm like well, let's stop giving them so much ammo yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well the french are gonna do it anyway yeah exactly that's yeah. a bad example i had two when i was over there with uh drag the river i had two very different experiences where i actually got along with the french and we were in uh this small village um and i mean village it was a it was a abbey a pub and that was it and and, and everyone was there the grandmothers were there the dogs and the kids were there for the gig and uh no one spoke a lick of English except for the people we were staying with. And uh, uh, the guy we were staying with, son, 12 years old, I was like, would you translate for me? And uh, and so he got up there on the microphone, and I was like, I took French in high school, um, and I made an A on the first half because the teacher was beautiful. And so he tells all blah, 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 you know, he does all that. And uh, and then... And so I say, and then she left and came back to France and broke my, you know, high school heart. And, uh, and we find ourselves in this situation. <laughs> and he translated that and they're like, oh, and so they were all friendly. That is such a French story though, yeah, yeah. dude. You were really playing to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the opposite happened in Bissasson. It's like a college town and the guy was like, you know, it's like, we know why we hate America, your shallow culture. They were just being dicks. And I was like, I was like, look, you people have been holding each other down in like a non-permeable class system based on religion and superstition for thousands of years before our Coca-Cola. And they were like, it was like silence, and they were like, "This smart American." <laughs> so, I was like, "So I find that you either got to agree somewhere, you got to just give them shit right now." That's probably more syllables in English they'd ever heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah had, they might have not known what the hell I was talking about. I had the opposite experience in high school. I had a French teacher dressed up like Pocahontas for Halloween one year, and it still like haunts me. <laughs> because it was so hot, or because it was the no. opposite. <laughs> it was not that hot. <laughs> 
Said to might help me too now. Said <laughs> to German. You can't do those jokes in German. No. No, we no. Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, well, the German thing that, it, that that took me a second to get used to was um, what they think is brutal honesty and really is just unnecessary commentary. <laughs> you yeah. know, what they tell you, the, ah, uh, you, ah, uh, your new record, I love it. Your 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 old one is shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, or you've. Uh, why are you fatter? <laughs> you know, I'm just like these sorts of things, and they want you to know they know things sometimes, and it's great. But it's it's very, I'm, it's just unnecessary. I'm I'm from America, you know. We know uh, opinions are shit. You know, mm-hmm. everyone has one, and whatever. It's relative. That's it. But they want you. It's very precise, and they want you to know their opinion, and they want you to know. That you know, that they know that it's something, and I'm just like, it's cool. They're very Prussian. They're very <laughs> yeah. They want As a father of a four year old, I can tell you, it's very four year oldish. Yeah, <laughs> Germans. Germans are just like four year olds. Seems like it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> there's just no uh, no uh, sense of. Uh, I guess they have a sense of of what's proper, but they just don't. They want to impress. Yeah, but in you. a way, it's almost. You want people to keep that. Like, you wish you could keep that level of honesty forever. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then just keep it to yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And I love it. It's because it's, uh, I love Germany. I just love, but that's just a cultural observation. Like, I, I was on the revival tour and we just, I said one of those things and everyone on the bus, you know, uh, Tommy, Laura, um, and, uh, Dave and everybody uh, just started doing their German. You yep. know, the, the, everybody had one or two of the just the worst things that anybody could say to your face. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> after after all these podcasts, we're gonna have a collection of just all like we should of everyone's German journalist story. Yeah, it just kills me, kills me. Um, uh, touring sounds like you just in between. You know, when you were talking about getting the record put together and you know mastering it few months and shopping it around were you touring during all that time as well i was um but right around then or right after then my, my father was really ill he passed a couple of years ago and uh so i i moved home to sort of help take care of him and uh so there was a lot going on right after it was recorded and then but yeah i took to the road after that i told my booking agent i didn't want to see the light of day for a year and so mm-hmm. he kept me out pretty solid work so was that more returning in the ford focus at that point no let's see what was i i was in all different kinds of things that was actually one of the first time i went to europe that fall um it's actually where i first met dave haas when i was down doing the harvest of hope thing uh tour with austin lucas just lots of yeah vans and i had a little soccer mom town and country that i took all the seats out of and put a mattress in i was in that for years and yeah that had no uh air conditioning in the south Mm -hmm. and um, but my girlfriend at the time, sometimes she would come with me and so she would just be in a bikini, um, holding an ice baby. Do you know about the, no, you don't know about touring with an ice baby. If you have a, <laughs> in the South or anywhere it's hot, if you have, a, if you're on tour and you know, you don't have air conditioning, you just sort of wear your trunks or your, your, your swimming costume. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you go and buy a, a bag of ice at a, gas station and then you you just hold the ice baby as you drive and then you you pass it and if you're like the fourth person to get the ice baby it's all dirty it's covered in this i didn't know there was a name for this. i don't know I if there's really a name. i just call it the ice baby but you're just like hey, it's all melty even brown water yeah. 
So, How long does each person hold it for? Um, uh, yeah, just long enough to cool off. Yeah, yeah. But I would tour, and she'd be there in a bikini with the ice baby, and I'd be like, "I'm never fixing this air conditioning." <laughs> that must be. That's great. That's a good story. Seems to be less economical with the ice. Like you could just go buy a bunch of big gulp cups and pour ice in it, and then just periodically just pour it in your crotch. <laughs> get that the same effect. I think that would do the trick. Yeah. yeah. Or since swimsuits, you know, are porous, you just pour the ice down in there, and then as it melts off slowly, enjoy that southern temperate weather. <laughs> wow! <laughs> as it boils off of you. <laughs> God, ridiculous. Um, when you toured to see the light of day, was that just to kind of get away? With, I mean, imagine you know losing a parent and helping them out must have taken its toll. Yeah, it was shit. Yeah. It was it was garbage. Um, he was a good dude. And, yeah, just drew a bad hand real early. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was good. I stayed around, you know, enough w- to help with the family, but the family's pretty tight knit, so there wasn't really a whole lot to do. And so I just, you know, buried my head in the road mm-hmm. for a while. So it was good. I mean, it was uh, it's hard for a while. Uh, actually, I was touring with Austin Lucas, and he had this one song. It was right after that, and I was like, and we got to where he'd give me the signal because I just, I, I lost it. Like the two gigs in, I just l- lost it. I was crying, weeping like a child all over my boots and whoever was around me. And so uh, I was like, don't ever fucking play that song again when I'm in the room. <laughs> I was like, just <laughs> let me know. And so into the tour, he'd get he'd get towards, you know, the time of the set where it was variable and he, he'd look up at me and give me the signal. I'd fucking go out and smoke and whatever and <sighs> go back in. Yeah, so that one tore me up for a while. But uh, yeah, it was good. It was good to have... Uh, you know, purpose. Next gig. Next gig. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, get your brain, get your brain off, but it also you know helps the process. So. Yeah, absolutely. That song probably helped the most. Uh, your family. Where are you in the family? Is it big family, small family? Um, it's uh, well, I'm I'm the oldest. I have uh-huh. uh, a, a little sister who's just right behind me. He has a real life nurse, two kids, you know, and I have a little brother um, who is twelve years younger than me. Wow. So yeah. Um, and then, you know, all the family's still there in Mississippi. I, they think I'm crazy for leaving. No one's left, I don't believe. I mean, they're all That's right. the Southern way. My mom, yeah. had she had my dad not been drafted and forced to move all over, she was unheard of. She was like, you, all her family is in Charlotte. You grew up, got married by 20. Yeah. You know? It's had, mildly scandalous to, yeah. to move. Yeah, and you don't, you don't leave. And the fact that they left constantly, like... Mm-hmm. I live with my grandmother, I live with my uncles. I was, you know, all over the place in the early, uh, early seventies, which was looking back on it, one of those things where it's like, I thought this was cool. And then through therapy, I'm like, what a horrible existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You bounced around six times before you're three. You made a friend. Uh, Tell him bye. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 that was my. That was everything until I was 14. That was my whole life. Um, uh, so they're all still in the in the same town or the town you moved to for the work outside um, of Memphis. My immediate family is still in uh, South Haven, which is the okay. northernmost town in Mississippi, and but my extended family is still there in Arkabala. Wow. Yeah. So that's your whole family is the town basically. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. That's bonkers. Yeah, the small the small town thing is 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 one of the truer myths of the south. You know, you cruise down. I mean, it's bad enough and I mean that in a nice way of, you know, you'll find your like weird rednecky, you know, rural type towns in Maryland, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Maryland's still south of Mason Dixon. But um you get down I, I had a buddy who was the fir- went down south. Uh, for the first time when he was in college, he was dating this girl. And he went down to a beautiful stone mountain. And um, he called me and he went, dude, 
It's like, what? And he went, two things. Mellow Yellow is 35 cents. It's amazing. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I said, what else? And he went, they think they won. <laughs> <laughs> no one told me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you're in Stone Mountain. Look up. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think's up there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a specific breed right there. Well, that, and that, that, are, that town very specific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely where I'm from. They they feel the the they know they lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they feel the feel the burden of it. You know, it's still the poorest state, and you know, I mean, it's just, and that's that's what happens when you go from agriculture to industrial, and mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, uh, and there's never any uh, any sort of funding to help whatever mm-hmm. afterwards, you know, you know because it's 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 a uh, it's a bloody past there. Uh, and it's you, you feel it the weight of that in, a, in in different ways. You know, a lot of people have white guilt and mm-hmm. you have these sorts of things. You know, and it's just like, but I really and oh god, I can't believe it. why would I say this? Um, moving up here when I first I lived in Brooklyn. I lived mm-hmm. down the street at Bedford and Grant. When I first moved to New York, and I love New York, love the city. I experienced more racism here than I have ever experienced in my life growing up in Mississippi because everyone. It's pretty much well. It's there's not there's just not a lot of races there. For first, it's just black and white in Mississippi, and you just everyone's so poor that you just sort of grow up around each other. There are no barrios. There's no ghetto. There's no there's no you know uh, communities that maybe hold together out of necessity that are separated. But mm-hmm. it's separated here in general ways. And then everybody comes together, and I was just like, oh my god, everybody hates everybody. <laughs> just, I, was like, I was just walking around. I was like, oh my god, you just said that. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I was shocked. I was, and I, I, and I was naive, you know. And uh, and I was just like, wow. And then, and then I, then I saw the city, you know, more. And then I was like, okay, it's everybody's getting along in great ways. I'm just seeing just clashes that would happen regardless of race. It's just everybody's in everybody's way. Yeah. And they're underfoot. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it took me right at first. I was like, oh my God, it's a race. It's racist here. It's going to be a race <laughs> war. Like, but I'm from Mississippi, you know, where we're all supposed to be racist and stuff. And I was like, oh no, this yeah, is you, what racism is. You just realized that <laughs> it's... Why am I talking about this on the radio in New York? <laughs> and, the, and the blue state of New York, yeah, racism, yeah. very prominent. Yeah, well, yeah. it's what, it, what you realize is New York is everything really fast. Yeah. So you get... Yeah. Yeah. I just what didn't. would take the the equivalent amount of experiences that you would have in a day in New York would take you a year. Yeah, oh yeah, if not ten town. years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot, and, it, and that's what it, it took me a little bit too. Also to realize the cultural stuff about. Um, I was like, oh, I came up here sort of with my stereotypes, like oh, everybody's gonna be rude and things like this. And it took me about a month, and then riding the subway, and I realized that people not making eye contact and not starting conversation with you is polite. Because there is no personal space here. And so not looking at someone and not invading whatever little personal space they can save on their way to work yeah. is, is a form of politeness. And it took me a little bit. Because, I, you know, I walk down the street and it's like, hey. And then people are like, whoa. You know? And, uh, and no so they gave you a dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all that money. Um, so, yeah, it took me a little bit. It's just, you know, just a little bit of a cultural shift. But. Yeah. I remember growing up in, in on military bases and you didn't know race. You weren't taught that. Mm-hmm. And and I have family, you know, in the South. Turns out are actually pretty racist, but I had no idea oh, because no. they didn't. That was their thing. And they yeah. didn't. Everybody was communal and hanging out. And I never understood it. So being on bases, um, you didn't know race, but you knew officers and enlisted. Oh, yeah. You know, and yeah. that was that was different. And my dad was was an officer. So we got to go into like the one restaurant and my friends couldn't go in. It was weird. It was yeah. Very, very odd. Uh, and then I moved back to the States. My dad retired. I remember going to school 
and I was hanging out. I went up to these dudes, and one was a um, a really tall black guy, and uh, we were playing basketball. And uh, these white kids I had been talking to were like, "What are you doing talking to him?" And I went, "We're playing ball, right? Obviously, we should grab him to play." And they went, "No, because he's." black and i went oh i was going because he's tall, tall man yeah, what, yeah, what yeah. the hell's wrong with you and i didn't understand i got really confused and i started looking around and i was like little pockets of black kids little pockets of asian kids little pockets of white kids and i was talking to this pocket of white kids hmm. um who happened to all be wearing jean jackets with bad mullets and reeked of cigarette smoke um sounds like a great basketball team yeah <laughs> uh, we definitely would have been cool you guys playing really slow why are you bouncing the ball over and over again <laughs> very confused but it, it freaked me out yeah. And I, did, I didn't, I could not understand that mindset. Yeah. That's great, though, that you didn't experience it till how old? Uh, God, like 14. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, if we, if we could just keep people from having to experience it till, you know, ever. Yeah, you know, just keep just them keep away ever. from their parents and they'll yeah. be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. I'm not saying by any stretch that it's, it's, it's more racist here than it's in South Carolina. I mean, it's the worst, you know, yeah. everywhere, but it's, it's, it's bad down there, but it's dying off. I mean, like people, cause when I go to, like I lived in LA too and they're like, oh, you're from Mississippi. You, you got the clan, the clans there, and all that stuff. I'm like, no, no. I mean, no, I, I think never... they moved to Connecticut, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, call. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't know any of that stuff. And they just assume that you're all racist. And there's, you know, there are racial clashes there because it's everybody lives together. And it's, so you mm-hmm. have the, you have the worst that's happened historically, but you also have, you have rock and roll. You have the the, mm-hmm. the greatest sort of coming together of the, you know, of, of cultures that that genuinely have blended seamless. And so it's. Uh, if it wasn't for tolerance, there wouldn't be music. If it wasn't for, you know, the blues starting and a couple of white dudes going, this sounds cool, you know, mm-hmm. and like varying it and moving on. If it wasn't people going into another person's cultural house, yeah. you know, experiencing another kind of ethnicity, then nothing would have changed or it would have altered. Now, hold on. You've lived in Brooklyn. Uh, you live in Nashville now, but you lived in L.A.? I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. Whereabouts? Uh, <laughs> ugh, right in the heart of the beast. I was at Sunset and Fairfax. You were in the heart and, of the beast. Good ugh. God. You were in that big, tall building right there? I was behind the coffee bean in this little, off like Laurel. God, right, right there. I know right where you were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh man, but behind a coffee bean, that sounds pretty good. It wasn't the it wasn't the worst location as far as that. And had a little Baja fresh. Yes, you were. Yeah. And you were right across from the Directors Guild mm-hmm. and um some comedy place. Uh you were right by the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. There was a Virgin Records there, it's not a Trader Joe's. Yeah, that was with the the movie theaters gone now, a little No, Larry, really? The five yeah. Five or something. That I was think. the best movie theater. That's where I, I saw like cool. Chasing Amy and all these crazy like <laughs> indie films. Um, and there's a great uh, Griddle Cafe. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Yes. That's solid breakfast. That's one of those places that is, uh, sounds super trendy and you go there and it's, you know, people dress the nines to go out and then you go and you eat the food and you're like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> this is the largest set of pancakes in the world yeah, yeah. for me. Yeah. Bacon as thick as like a, as a Reebok. It's the greatest place. I always want to take people there when I'm out there. I'm like, I'm not going there. Trendy, stupid. I'm like, fuck. You. I'm going by, going by myself. Yeah, we've got a place in Nashville that's uh, it's not trendy, but it's a line, a line around the block. It's mm-hmm. called the Pancake Pantry, and I'm just, I was like, I'm not standing in line for pancakes. <laughs> yeah. I'm not standing. I mean, it's like an hour. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. And one day we just we did it, and I was like, okay, let's get back in line. <laughs> did you, know, did you guys was, ever go to that place, the Apple Pan? Where's that? It's like a burger place by the airport, by LAX. Oh, uh, wait. It's like a really famous... 
I guess mm-hmm. not. <laughs> Most famous places I haven't heard My of. My girl okay. probably has. She's from L.A. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, she, she's probably in there. From L.A.? Now you guys are in Nashville? Or? Yeah. Well, she, uh, she was born and raised in L.A., uh, which is a strange thing. Isn't um, it? Because there's like not many people who no, were born there yeah. and lived there. Yeah. And so she, um, yeah, she moved back to Memphis, uh, down actually to Mississippi a little bit. Her mother's down there in Clarksdale. And, uh, and her mother worked with the Folk Alliance, sort of an international folk conference there. And I met her about five, six years ago. And, folk is in? Uh, yeah, I mean, Mighty Wind. Wow. No, I mean, there's, there's some great stuff. It's really great, too. I mean, there's, you know, you'll go and it's... It's a cool little festival. They've had it in Memphis for six years, and it's it's going to Toronto and then maybe St. Louis or something. It's, Memphis lost it, but uh, it would be, I mean, everybody from Charlie Leuven and old old country stuff, they have bigger acts, but then um, it's in the Marriott, and the top three floors of the Marriott for the whole weekend were all music after 9, from 9 to like 3 a.m., and it's folk music, so it's all unplugged, and it's all different, you know, homemade instruments or different stuff. So you go from hotel room to hotel room, and they would just be sitting there at the ends of the beds, and it would be like, oh, well, there's Michelle Shock standing there playing banjo, and then you go down and just go from room to room, and you're like, oh, there's some Norwegian twins playing a fiddle with keys on it. Uh, and then you just, Dude, it, it's so weird. It was really fun, and so I went for it. I played it a few times, but I went just to go, and... uh it was, it was a good time. Did That's they do anything to like to change to to decorate or change up the? Yeah, sometimes they look. throw you know little blankets and they have little little fruit nuts that you you know. But it's in. literally just a hotel room. Just hotel rooms. That's yeah, so yeah. bizarre. That's how they do the fucking warp tour. <laughs> yeah, get out of the parking lot. Get on the third floor of a Ramada. Yeah. <laughs> Just go from room to room. Crowd in half hour set. Get the hell out. Yeah. Get get my bass can in between the beds. Yeah, my plans turn down. <laughs> too fucking loud wow that's amazing oh yeah. that's really cool that is so bizarre i want to yeah. go to that yes <laughs> i think it's in toronto this year uh canada yeah and is yeah. there a bar um no nah, folks bar drink just, i don't even know oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's not all mighty wind type folks I and mean, it's a lot of young people and it's and it's from uh I mean, that's the indie rock in certain countries, you know. I mean, that's, right. you know, that's countries with the stronger tradition of that. And so they're, you know, good looking kids. You know, walking <laughs> around and you're just like, huh, where are you from? <laughs> Galway. It's a beautiful harp. <laughs> Can I give you a hand with that? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So that's where I met uh, my fiance. And, uh, it, yeah. And so. She moved up to Nashville with me, and she's actually on this tour with me. She's in a in a little uh, dog dick red Ford Focus for the next five weeks with me. Is she doing the Ice Baby bikini thing? No or? Ice Baby. I've actually got air conditioning, but I may act like it's busted. Dog dick red has basically changed the way I look at the color red for the rest of my life. And the fact that he said it that way has, has kind of now destroyed it because not that i won't like red anymore but i'm gonna say it in a social situation where it's not going to be cool like i'm gonna be over it like my in-laws like oh these are cool dog dick red god bless it you know you got you know how you you could there's one way that you can say that in any company and it'll sound right you don't say this is dog dick red you say yeah that color dog dick red oh that's true you have the drawl. Yeah. You can get away with so much more 
obscenity when you have a southern draw. I should go back to my accent. <laughs> There's a recording of my second birthday party. And it's literally me going, are we having candy? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's obnoxious. You know, I spent my developing years in Oklahoma. I used to have a really strong accent. And it comes back every now and then. That's a different accent, though. Yeah, Oklahoma's. But I, but, and then I've got all these cousins from Tennessee. And so it's like, well, we were talking about my re- upcoming family reunion. Like, by the, by the time I leave Indiana, I'll, ha- I'll, have, I'll be like, I'll, I'll be talking like them. The Oklahoma, or, or, or just a little bit. Like the Oklahoma accent is a cross between kind of, it's like a draw, but it's Midwestern. Because like I have a yeah. pretty specific Midwestern accent and the fact that you're high, you know, it's just very American. You know what I mean? So do you from Cleveland. It's very just very straightforward. But like Oklahoma and Tennessee, you're kind of, you're migrating south. I got, bu- I got busted like just two days ago in here. We were talking about something and I said wash. Oh, know? yeah. They're like, and three people laughed. Pointed fingers at me, and then you fired them all. Made me cry. Get. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's interesting, Jonah, and and you can back yes. me up on this. Brad, we were dis- I was discussing with Brad this morning um, how he's too nice to his interns. It's true, <laughs> and needed to take a little tip from us when we worked at Fuse. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like you really spearheaded that. I felt like because <laughs> I felt oh, I see. <laughs> You never saw me throw shit, though. No, but I, I just remember you constantly just messing with them, but in a, in a very funny way. Yeah, what was the light story? <clears throat> oh, this is before Jonah started working there. There was this kid who ended up being an intern for this comedy show I worked on the web at Fuse. And when the intern showed up, the woman around the intern program went, this kid's working with you. And this kid walks in with a T-shirt that just said SARS on it. <laughs> so right then we were like, awesome. <laughs> so... We when we had to shoot video in the office for this little comedy thing, it was like kind of a newsy thing. We needed to dim the lights, and or no, we had to turn the lights on. Everyone at Fuse would have the lights off and keep it very dark on this uh, floor of the building. So we're like, "All right, John, go turn on all the lights and shout." I'm really sorry about this, and then go apologize to everyone. And he would go over and do it, and then also I had this. <laughs> I had this ball with suction cups on it, and I would hurl at the windows and go, John, go get that ball. And it, oh, it was ridiculous. And he would do everything. He was cool, actually. He was very funny. He's probably like a head writer at a comedy series now. But we did this comedy show called Fuse Action News, which I don't think any exist on the web anymore, but it was kind of like the daily show for music, making fun of things. I have the DVD from you. Oh, shit. You gave it to me. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. No, I thought it was funny. So, so we got sponsorship. The ad sales team thought we were funny, so they got a sponsorship. So whatever the sponsors were, we would hurl at this kid. So if like if the sponsorship was Sharpies, we would we would have him sit in front of the camera and help the camera and go, Today's episode sponsored by Sharpies. And then we would take boxes of Sharpies and throw them at this kid. Oh, you should have taken the caps off. Him. Oh, one day, one day it was like it was like a, it was like a, a bank that had their ad on beach balls, so we hurled beach balls at him. And then one time, shit you not, it was Duracell. Oh, so we made him hold the frisbee and we threw batteries mm. at this kid, and not triple A's either. Oh god, those were C's. Awful. I had so funny. I had a weird intern story, sort of. Uh, when I was in my early twenties, I was used to do a lot of stuff at AP, but before I got hired, and I ended up sort of seeing this girl who a couple times who was an intern there also, and then 
I got hired there. And all of a sudden I was like, I work there and it was an intern. And I was like, well, now it's weird. <laughs> so uh, that was like a weird dynamic change. Like, yeah. I mean, that didn't happen with Bill Clinton, obviously. Cause was- <laughs> <laughs> but when you're in your early 20s, that kind of stuff can happen. And then like the power dynamic is weird because I don't want to be like, go mail all this stuff for me. So the sex get better or worse? I don't think, I, I think once I got hired, I kind of just like, I think no, you weren't my, into her. Well, I was like, <laughs> I just felt like it was wrong. Like, I felt like, I don't know. I feel like I'm looking for any kind of excuse to like self-sabotage myself. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just my way dealing with like, I'm not going to talk to this person or something. You know what I mean? Like, which is like the most immature. Right. So, yeah. And I don't know. So if you're out there and still feeling sore, <laughs> yes. Jonah does think about you. Although I can't remember your name. <laughs> oh, I'll <laughs> oh, see you was, next week. That was unnecessary. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.